Thanks for that good music. Well, good morning to you all on this uh, almost spring, almost spring day. Winter is slowly giving up its hold on us. This morning we're back talking about transformation, learning to live in the kingdom of God. We've uh, got our enrollment as students in the School of the Messiah, where we are to learn, right? We have to learn how to live in God's kingdom because we don't naturally fit. We have been fitted and formed for a different kingdom, the kingdom of this world. We know, we know how to live in that kingdom. <clears throat> We're comfortable fitting in, but now we've been brought by God's grace into the kingdom of his son. And we're qualified for that because we're in Jesus. He qualifies us all. But we're not yet fitted. And that's the transformation process that we've seen uh, the Apostle Paul talking about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we've, we've been working on that. We've been developing through this series a number of theses. We had four so far. I added a couple more to pick up the last couple weeks. <clears throat> Thesis five, transformation requires knowledge of self as well as knowledge of God. Those two to go together. See, we often separate. We think, well, Growing as a Christian is learning more about God. Yeah, but if you're not also learning more about yourself, uh, there's going to be problems there. And so it requires both. That's John Calvin's insight and, and the insight of a lot of other people as well. So we've been trying to work with that idea and encourage us, uh, each of us, to, to look within. <clears throat> Who am I? Not only what am I trying to become, who am I trying to become, but where am I right now taking stock? And thesis six, which we were really working with last week, is that there's no spiritual maturity without emotional maturity. I think that's the way that uh, Peter Scazzaro says it in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Church. And... Uh, <clears throat> That's something we've worked on in the course we offered back before COVID. We hope to offer it again, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. <clears throat> I will uh, I'll plan this week uh, to send you an update where I lay out all those theses. So you can have kind of a running uh, account of these. And we'll get another one today. All right. So we started looking within last week, particularly pointing out to ourselves that if the mind can be roughly divided into <clears throat> the, the functions of intellect and will and emotions, <clears throat> that uh, 
that that third area, emotion, is, is where we often don't spend time, but we need to. So we started to do that. <clears throat> and uh, I want to pursue that a bit more today, <clears throat> talking about knowledge and love. Knowledge, uh, uh, intellect, we often think of as somewhere located between our ears, right? <clears throat> Whereas love, we associate more physically with lower down, with the heart. And, uh, and then, of course, there's emotions we associate even lower than that. We think of things that come from our, our gut, right? So these are, these are physical pictures, although they actually, they're actually represent places where we feel some of these energies. So this morning, let's talk about knowledge and love. And we'll look at 1 Corinthians 8. Notice, I've highlighted in yellow, notice how much the word knowledge or know shows up in these few short verses. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. Now, the NIV puts those phrases in quotation marks. You may have that in your Bible because what the translators understand is that this is very likely Paul quoting slogans that were going around the Corinthian church. So they've written to ask him a question about some problems they've been having, and he's picking up some of their own language to respond, right? For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords... Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Now this is the beginning of a discussion that Paul carries on for at least three chapters. And, uh, and so there's a lot there. But this is enough for us to get the basic idea and I think uh, for our reflection this morning. So, <clears throat> what's the problem that, that they've written to Paul about? 
and that he's responding to here? Well, the issue arises out of life in a pagan culture. The church in Corinth is in a thoroughly pagan city, which all the cities of the ancient world were. Religiously diverse. Everybody in the ancient world is religious, right? Nobody's, nobody's secular. Religion is entwined with all of life. And so there are temples all over the place. And at those temples, sacrifices are offered. The person who brings the sacrifice then is invited, able to actually partake of the, the meat that is offered in sacrifice. <clears throat> and, and so they would. But there's often more meat than could be consumed by the person or their family. And so the additional meat, rather than just being thrown out, was offered to other people. Uh, so the question is here, you know, Paul says, if someone sees you eating meat in a temple, it was, it was like the local deli, right? You, you could go in and you could get food. And then there was, there was even more leftover sometimes, and that would show up in the markets. So you'd go to a market and maybe you want to buy meat at ShopRite, and you pick up a roast, and you don't know if it came from a temple or whether it was packaged by Hatfield Packing, right? So what do you do with that? Well, there, there are two responses that Paul is talking about, and this is where the problem comes up. <laughs> what he calls the weak and the strong. There are people who... Paul describes as the strong, and I'll say they, elsewhere he'll say they have a strong conscience, and these are people who have an understanding of idolatry and this sacrifice and all, who are just very comfortable saying, you know, an idol is really nothing in the world. Uh, there is only one true and living God. And this one living, true and living God has created all things for our good and for our enjoyment. And so even though some of this meat may have come from an idol's temple and, worship, and the worship of a God who doesn't even exist, it's okay for us as believers to partake of it. And, and they would. That's the strong conscience. Then there's what Paul calls the weak conscience. The weak conscience uh, might well be a person who has recently been converted out of paganism, and they've been thoroughly immersed in all of the idolatrous worship. Perhaps they've even experienced certain powers in that religious experience, and the idea for them that you would would eat anything that has been part of idolatrous worship is just uh, inconceivable. The, the freedom, the power, 
the goodness of what they've experienced in Christ means that anything that would associate them back with the old way is not to be tolerated. Well, now, the question that comes up, you see the problem, right? These are two diametrically opposed views of what you can eat. And it's not, I mean, it's, it's not a small point. You might feel it's a small point. You know why? Because you're, you're thoroughly removed from it. When, when you go to the store, it's not really a question for you whether, you, whether you're buying meat offered to idols. We have other kinds of questions that they didn't. But this question doesn't feel like a problem. Ah, of, of course, you know. The strong win on this one, right? But, but for them, it's a very deep problem, and it leads to potentially divisions in the church, and that is an issue in, in the Corinthian church. We know that. There's other things too, but this is a, this is a big one. So how, how is this problem to be resolved? <clears throat> maybe, the, maybe the weak just leave, Right? They go form their own church of the week in Corinth. And then the other church is the church of the strong. And so you got two churches going. That, that's the way a lot of churches are formed, actually, you know. Uh, that's the way we do it. We don't know how to deal with our problems, so we, we split, we withdraw. Well, so Paul, we got this problem. Help us. What are we supposed to do? Well, what Paul does here that's most important is that Paul does give some response to the immediate problem. But what he does more of is he probes deeper. So if we think about our tree here, the Corinthians bring the above-ground problem, what we might call the presentation problem. We've got these two views about meat offered to idols. How are we going to settle this problem? Paul says, let's go below ground. Let's, Let's see what else is happening here. So we're going to follow him, and we're going to try to go deeper. Let's talk about the problem of knowledge. Uh, here, here's the problem, at least this is part of the problem. Talking about knowledge says this problem is primarily an intellectual problem, right? If we think intellect, will, and emotions, it's primarily intellectual. And so it's susceptible to solution by rational arguments. So I line up my arguments and you line up your arguments and then we go to it and uh, Hopefully we solve the problem, except that usually we don't, which is what was happening in Corinth. Uh, There were people who were trying to do that. That's why the word knowledge shows up again and again. People were saying, we have knowledge. We know what's really going on here. Wasn't working. And it wasn't working because, as we've been saying, it's seeing the mind, the interior person, only as a 
what, a brain on a stick? Some people say, kind of an interesting image. You know that it's all intellect, <clears throat> ignoring the will, <clears throat> and even more importantly, ignoring the emotional issues underneath. So what? So Paul's going to dive deeper. Let's, uh, let's follow him a little bit. Right out in verse 1, he says, Now concerning the things you wrote to me, uh, uh, we know that we all have knowledge. And he's, he's quoting them. <clears throat> he's putting their bumper sticker theology on plain display, right? Yeah, we all have knowledge. Okay. First point Paul makes then is this. <clears throat> knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. <clears throat> What's the issue here? It's, it's the issue of pride, isn't it? And pride is an emotion. It's, it's that part of that energy we've talked about that drives us. And it's an energy, in this case, that doesn't drive us toward good things. Paul says, knowledge, the awareness that we are in the know, that puffs up like the, you know, like the Tom Turkey that, that in the spring is looking for girlfriends. And what does he do? You get some of those videos and, and watch them on YouTube. They're just great. You know, the turkey swells up and he puffs and he fans out his tail and he makes himself look as big as he can look. Why? Well, because there's other tom turkeys also looking for girlfriends. And the question is, who's the biggest tom on the block? And so he gets puffed up. Well, uh, this is what pride does to us. It, Paul says it puffs us up. It exalts us, and we're, we're, very, we're very driven to want to do that. And so we get into the knowledge discussion, the intellect, and if we're not careful, what really becomes the motive force there is not so much the concern to solve the problem as it is the concern that I should be exalted in that. I should show who I am. That's part of what's going on in Corinth. And it's a significant part of almost every church dispute, friends. Even if it's not acknowledged, and it usually isn't. All right, well, then what's another root that's down underneath that drives this discussion? Let's put three together because I think they're, they're pretty much on a continuum. There's anger, and there's contempt, and there's disgust. In Romans 14, <clears throat> 14 and 15, Paul is discussing with the Roman church a problem that's similar. It's not identical, but it does involve food. And, and there it seems to be a problem between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians who, uh, who have come out of a history of living under the Old Testament law, part of which is a dietary code. You don't eat certain things. 
not because they've been offered to idols in that case, but because God declares them unclean. So you don't eat pork. Don't eat shellfish. And, and some of these Jewish Christians who lived with that, you can understand, now they become Christians and they know, you know, they know in their heads that Jesus has declared all foods to be clean, but they don't feel that. Again, it's, it's emotional probably, right? And they, they feel that it would be better to maintain the Old Testament law. And they, they might well argue the point and say, well, you know, God, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God hasn't changed, so why would we expect that now all of a sudden uh, eating pork would be good? Okay, that's one way you could argue that. That's the way Seventh-day Adventists do it, even to this day. And then there are other people who said, no, we're free in Christ and, you know, get over it. And, you know, we're going to eat what we want to eat. <clears throat> so notice what Paul says here. Talking to those people in Rome. The man who eats everything, Gentile Christian probably, must not look down on him who does not. What's that looking down? Well, it's content. Disgust, perhaps. Oh, yes, and even anger. You know how that happens, right? Uh, you're challenging my understanding of God's truth. More than that, maybe you're trying to tell me how I should live my life. Who do you think you are? Oh, man. The emotions get pushing pretty fast then, don't they? What about judgment? Condemnation. That's right here in Romans 14 again, see? So the man who eats everything must not look down. He must not behave contemptuously toward the brother who doesn't feel that he can eat everything. But the other side is the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. So the Jewish Christian says, hey, God hasn't changed. You don't need to eat pork. Just obey God's law. Are you really a are you really a hundred percent Christian? Are you really committed? Or you just want to do what you want to do? Are you that kind of person? You hear you hear the word of judgment there? Have you been in, in these kinds of situations in churches? Probably. I'd say almost surely. And you were probably on one side or the other, right? So if you look back, you can sense where you had contempt and anger, disgust. Why, why can't this person just see the obvious in all this? Or maybe judgment. Yeah, I'm concerned about what God wants, right? don't know about them, or maybe I do know about them. They, they don't care. And then uh, let's add one or two that Paul doesn't mention explicitly here. How about competitiveness? Yeah, do, do you ever find you get into these kinds of discussions where there's debate and there's, there's something that rises up in you and 
doggone it, you just want to win. You, you just want to show that you're right. There's a great story about <clears throat> Dallas Willard, who, as, as you know, I think is, is one of the greatest people in recent memory to help us with a lot of these relational issues. And uh, Dallas was like 30, 35 years teaching philosophy at uh, USC, and, uh, and he was really a brilliant man. So he would go out and give lectures and, and would lecture about the kingdom of God and take questions and so forth. So in this one situation, uh, he was taking questions and there was, there was some uh, young man who uh, stood up and didn't really raise a question so much as he, he really... Uh, took his best shot at correcting Dallas for what he had said. And, uh, and Dallas <clears throat> simply thanked him for what he had to say. And afterwards, there were some people who had set up the, the program, you know, who said to, to Dallas, Dallas, uh, you could have easily responded to that and... I mean, it would be no problem at all for you to, in effect, shut this guy down, right? Why didn't you do that? His response was, I'm trying to learn the discipline of not having to have the last word. Isn't that great? <laughs> not having to have the last word. In other words, what he was... What he was turning down for himself as a spiritual practice was he wanted to learn how to shut down the spirit of competitiveness. Now, I'm not one of those people who think all competition is bad, right? Uh, I, I think a wrestling match is a good thing, you know? Baseball game's a good thing, and you have to be competitive for that. But in personal relationships... And in the church, competition is a dangerous thing. Is it always bad? I'm not sure that I've thought well enough about it. But for the most part, it's a bad thing, friends. In personal relationships, in marriages, uh, in friendships, not good. And, uh, and yet that's a powerful force in many of us, especially when we get into these debates over you know, who's right, who's wrong, how ought we to act? And I'll mention one more. Uh, by the way, you could probably add to this list, and if you do, send me an email. Say, I was thinking about this. What, what about this emotion? Right? Let's, let's look at the roots here. How about the desire to control other people? Or think of it as the desire to fix other people. Many of our disagreements are driven by this. It's not always the question that I want to be right. Sometimes that's there. But it's also the question that I want to, you to be right. <laughs> and I want you to be right according to my understanding what's right. 
So my, my concern is not just to convince you or to help you to see something, but I want you to change. I want you to conform to my understanding of what you ought to be. Think about how many marriages struggle over and over again because of just this, right? There's all kinds of arguments which, which if you just look at them on the surface, you say, well, this is a discussion about what ought to be done in a certain circumstance. But how many times underneath is one spouse really trying to fix the other? And the result is, when that's happening, the, the person who is, you know, intended to be fixed, shall we say that way, they can feel it, right? And they may not speak to the issue, but in their hearts, they're saying, there's no doggone way you're going to fix me. Because I know that the problem, and so it accelerates. So here's the thing, friends. These, uh, these discussions about knowledge and about practice and what we do and how we re- resolve issues within the body of Christ or in the family or friendships or whatever, they're not just head issues, see? Unless we're willing to go down deeper, go down into the heart, which, which includes not just our thought processes, but our emotional processes, the drives. Unless we're willing to go there and ask the, the honest questions, what is happening here? Well, then we never really get a resolution. And that's why Paul takes it to that deeper level. We need to take care of our hearts. Think of Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart. Not just your mind. Not just how much scripture you know. How much theology you can debate. But pay attention to what's going on down there. At that deep level. Guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Every church division flows out of the heart. And the solution is in the heart. And because we try to keep it at the intellectual level, we, <clears throat> we then have no alternative except to go into a Cold War situation, right? So we have the different factions in the church. This is what happened in Corinth, different factions, Right? I'm with this group. I'm with this group. Here are the people I avoid. And if I can't avoid them enough, I leave. Problem solved, right? No. So how do we <clears throat> care for the heart? Well, Paul gives us the hint right in verse 1 of our section. And then he doesn't talk about it a lot more until much later. Actually, you go through to chapter 13, and that's where he talks about what he calls the most excellent way. And you probably know that chapter. But he's already introduced here in verse 1, where he says, We all have knowledge, 
Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And it's love that is the most excellent way. Now, let's, let's work with a definition because there's so much sentimentalism involved with that term that uh, we can get confused. So let me try this as a definition. Love is the intention, the aim, the focus. It's the intention to seek God's best for the other person. It's not the intention to seek God's best for you. That's, that's the kingdom of this world. Yeah, we, we fit real easily in that, right? You could slide into that one very easily. But being transformed to fit into God's present and coming kingdom in Jesus, that is where seeking God's best now gets directed away from me toward other people. And so when these conflicts and crises come up, which they always do, they always do, then the question is, what is going on my, in my heart, right? If the driving force is pride, if it's the need to win, if it is judgment, uh, if it's anger and contempt, uh, if that's what's going on, no solution in sight, friends. just gets worse. <clears throat> but if I, can, <clears throat> if I can look within and there find, <clears throat> or if I don't find it, ask for it, Ask the God who gives graciously and doesn't withhold. But I can evaluate myself and say, am I functioning out of love? In other words, love, this intention, becomes the guide for evaluating all of my, my emotions. So we're back to that, uh, that Kurt Thompson thing, right, about paying attention. Can I honestly look within and, and say to myself, ask myself, what's going on? So, <clears throat> many years ago, I was fresh out of seminary. Oh man, my head was packed so full of knowledge. You, I was a wonder to behold. <clears throat> uh, and it was an issue that came up at the church that Sharon and I were attending that uh, didn't seem good to me. And, uh, and I got pretty fired up about it. And the terminology is important to listen to. See, I, I got fired up. There was energy flowing. It wasn't just an intellectual thing for me. There was energy there. I didn't like what I saw, and I wanted to fix it. 
which is what you want to do with problems, right? Especially if you're a, a problem solver, which is my leaning, see? You want to fix the problem. So I, so I ran in and did the best I could to fix it. And uh, man, did I cause trouble. Whoa. I was, uh, I was clueless about what was happening underneath, right? I was, I was fixed on the problem, and I could have given you all the reasons why I knew what the problem was, and I knew how we ought to fix it, and I did my best to fix it. And you might say in that discussion, I won the day. But I permanently, permanently lost some relationships. It, it would have been, I think it might have been helpful if there had been a more mature Christian who could have come alongside and say, Dave, let's just, just back burner the problem for a little bit. Uh, let's look at the, the lights on the dashboard <laughs> to use you know, the image that we've had. The lights are all lit up. Do you, do, you under, do you have any clue as to why they are all lit up? <laughs> the problem is, nobody did that. Now, to be fair, I didn't ask for it. But, but it was in part, and maybe I wouldn't have listened, but it was in part because, as I told you before, I grew up in churches where the assumption was you work from the intellect you understand, and then you act, and you ignore the emotional element. And that is a recipe for disaster. And so I look at that, I mean, it's a half century ago. I'm still embarrassed by it. You know, the way, the way so many of our church communities work, we ought to be embarrassed. So it leads me to Thesis 7, folks. Thesis 7, knowledge without love equals trouble. Haven't had this train wreck picture up for a while, have we? I thought about it today, yeah. That's what it is. When we <clears throat> ignore what's going on below, in our hearts, from which all the issues of life flow, when we ignore that, there's a train wreck coming, friends. For us personally, maybe for a friendship, maybe for a marriage, Maybe for a congregation. But there's a train wreck coming. So what do we do? You say, boy, I've got some of these strong feelings. I don't even know, I don't even know how to, to deal with them. It's, a, it's great to talk about love, but the fact is, when I start feeling some of this stuff, I don't, it, it just comes out. 
right. So where does that leave us? It leaves us in the place of prayer where we come to a holy and loving and all-powerful God and we say, Lord, I realize in a fresh way that salvation is from you alone. And I need to be saved (laughs) from who I am. Please send your spirit. Give me insight. Give me spirit power. And help me to live the life of love that fits me for life in your kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we come as people who are still broken, still needing so much transformation. often so unaware of what's really going on inside of us. So so unable, it seems, God, to consistently live the life of love which seeks the good of others, even as Jesus has come and sought our good. So we pray, Lord, that you would grant us desire to be transformed, that you give us help in that process. We pray that as a congregation we might learn to relate not in the world's way but in the Spirit's way. And as a consequence then to live in the fullness of your blessing and joy. Help us, Lord, even this week to take small incremental steps, perhaps, but nonetheless to take steps in the right direction. We give you thanks for the the power of your word to address the deep needs in our lives. We give you our thanks in Jesus' precious name. Amen.